Theoden is the king of Rohan in the southwest of Middle-earth in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. But in the scene I'm about to show you from early in the Two Towers, King Theoden is stricken and afflicted in a particular kind of way. And Gandalf, the wizard, has come to pay Theoden and his kingdom a visit. You have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. <laughs> I will draw you, Saruman, as poison is drawn from a wound. Wait. If I go, Theoden dies. You did not kill me. You will not kill him. So as you saw, King Feoden is stricken in the sense of being under a spell, under the influence of another master in that moment. That is Saruman, who, like Gandalf, is a wizard and who, in one season of his life, was out for mercy and for justice, but who had been corrupted for the desire for power and now does the bidding of the Dark Lord Sauron. All that stuff's going to keep you up at night. But in the moment, Gandalf comes and exerts an influence, a power over Theoden, such that he is liberated. Liberated from the influence that's made him worthless to himself and to his kingdom, and influence that allowed his kingdom to crumble beneath his feet, and now Gandalf has come to free him. To free him from what has held him. And that's all wonderful. And what does it have to do with anything? For the last six weeks, we've been asking this question, what does Jesus mean in Revelation 21 when he says, I am making all things new? And so we've been going verse by verse, text by text, looking at all the things that are new as a consequence of his ministry. And this week, we're going to listen to the Apostle Paul speak of how what Jesus has come to do is bring us 
what Paul calls is newness of life. But what's at the foundation of that newness is a new freedom. A freedom from something that perhaps is not as dramatic as what you saw happen to King Theoden, but it is an apt parallel in the sort of freedom that we've been given. And so we want to ask three questions about that truth. What is this freedom? And how did we come by this freedom? And what now is a consequence of this freedom? What is this freedom? How did we come by this freedom? And what now is a consequence of this freedom? We're in Romans chapter 6. It's thick. Hold your Bible. Put your finger on the passage. Follow along. And let's see what is this argument that he's making about a new freedom that's come our way. Our central text for today is found in Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. So as we've had to do before in this series, we're, we're parachuting in to the middle of an argument that Paul is making here in chapter 6. And in order to get a running start, we need to retrace our steps that he took and acknowledge that he's essentially made three ideas manifest to this point. One is this, that in every human heart, there is a resistance and a rebellion to submitting to the Lordship of God that there is an autonomous streak in all of us, that we think we know best and insist that we can do best. And that is true of then Gentiles who had no knowledge of the God of Israel. It's also true of Jews who were without excuse, even though they had a knowledge of who the, the God of Israel was. That's the first argument. The second argument it is, from that resistant, rebellious spirit derives all manner of death. Death now by uh, a thousand cuts and a death later, 
um, that is beyond proportion. And yet into that situation, uh, into that predicament, God has parachuted himself. He's, he's dwelt with us. He hasn't sent somebody else. He sent himself. He sent himself in his son to enter into that condition and to die for us and to apply to us that which is his. And here in Romans 6, on the basis of that truth, he's out to answer what he thinks might be a false impression given what he said so far. Because what he said so far is that where sin was everywhere, grace has abounded and all the more. And so some might be led to conclude that if grace has come to cover every sin, if grace has come to abound where sin was plentiful, then, you know, why worry about sin? Why not continue in sin? Apparently, it's not a big enough deal to the Lord. And that's why Paul says in so many words, what are you, nuts? That's a paraphrase. You want to continue in sin? Obviously, he has a problem with that. Obviously, he's scandalized by the very reason for asking that question. And he's out to say to us this. The reason he's scandalized is because what we have in Jesus is his person, but in his person we have a gift. And that gift is a new freedom. That's what newness of life is. But that new freedom has a specific character to it. This freedom, this life, is a freedom not to sin. A freedom not to sin. Now, obviously we have in Jesus a mandate not to sin. You know, go and sin no more. We also have all, all manner of inducements not to sin. He, he gives us ways in which we think of sin as a path to destruction. So that's definitely an inducement. But what we're talking about here, what Paul is focusing on here, is that the freedom that we've been given not to sin is a power. There is a power we have not to sin. Okay, so at this point we need to buckle up because I'm going to do a little whirlwind tour through his argument here in these 14 verses. That's why I said grab your Bible, hold on to your Bible. You may need to actually use your finger to kind of trace the argument that he's making. Here's the argument that he's making. When he says in verse 4 that we've been given newness of life, he's not simply talking that Jesus is giving us a new set of ethics. He has, but he hasn't even primarily given us a new set of ethics. He's given us a new capacity. A new capacity for life. A new capacity not to sin. Okay, how is that true? And, or at least how is, how is Paul making that argument? In verse 6, he says, we are no longer enslaved to sin. In verse 7, he says we've been freed from sin. In verse 9, he says we're no longer under the dominion of sin, the mastery of sin. And then in verse 12, he talks about that we are no longer subject to the reign of sin. See, it's all having to speak of sin as a power. That's its freedom. But let's just be clear here. What is the precise character of that freedom? You might hear that we've been freed from the, uh, the, uh, freed from the, the, the capacity to sin, you might think that that means we're freed from its guilt. That because we've been forgiven, that maybe that freedom has to do with our guilt. And though that is true, if guilt is something that he removes once for all, then it doesn't seem like it makes any sense that we have to contend with that. We don't need to remove our own guilt again. So he's probably not talking about freedom from guilt. He's also probably not talking about the freedom from the presence of sin, the, the influence of sin. Again, you'd have to ask, why is he later in the passage saying that we must not let sin reign in our mortal bodies? If, 
if sin were no longer around, if, you know, if Elvis has left the building, but sin has not left the building, then, then again, or if sin has left the building like Elvis, then why would we have to contend with it? That's the point. The presence of sin is still here. The influence of sin is here. So the freedom that we have is not from its guilt. It's not even from its influence, but it is freedom from its mastery. Sin as a power has a way of it and the degree to which it exerts an influence over us, that's done. That's over by virtue of our faith in Him. And you may hear that and say, whoop-de-doo, I, I might as well have just told you that you have some rental property on the dark side of the moon. Of what good is that information to me? And I can entirely respect that claim because I know full well that you're thinking in the back of your mind, I don't care if you tell me that I no longer have sin's mastery over me. I'm pretty masterful at sin. And I would raise my hand and say, man, I'm with you. You can be the vice president. The point of it is this, the implication of it is this, we, we, we do still have the capacity to sin, we, we still do sin, but we are not fated to sin. It's not an inevitability on the basis of this new freedom. And that means the, the way which you and I think about sin, it's, it's not to be the posture of just waiting for the other shoe to drop of just sort of saying, well, I'm only human, it's just going to happen. And whereas that might be a true statement, in some ways, it's a refusal or a denial to believe that something has happened as a consequence of his work on our behalf. Now, at this point, uh, there may be part of you that maybe shares the, the perspective of, a, of an onlooking world. If you are uh, lurking from some unknown place today, you're not, you're not part of a Christian community, you you think uh, belief is for other people. Uh, one, I, I, I welcome that you're here. I'm delighted and thrilled that you've come this far. But you may be thinking with all this talk of sin that, man, we are preoccupied with sin. That we are, we are fixated on it. And it is a true statement that Paul is devoting all of his labor to talking about the nature of sin and the fact that we've been given a freedom not to sin. The gospel in case you weren't sure, is primarily about forgiveness of sin. That's what Jesus has come to do, among other things. But here's the deal. In a world like ours that maybe uh, laughs a little or, or mocks the extent to which we give any attention to sin, uh, in a world that laughs and mocks with our concern about sin, that, that same world if you've been watching, is often um, passionately decrying, if not unhinged, about certain things like racism and sexism and injustice and in desecrating people and cultures and in reducing people to indignity and in following wanton greed. And look, that kind of passion, that kind of decrying, um, that, that kind of argumentation, look, that's that is an argument that's not just an outrage over some sort of culturally constructed mores. It is, it is not an outrage over sort of a social contract that we all didn't know that we'd signed up for that's being violated. This is something even bigger. The outrage is reaching for something that you cannot compare to anything else other than sin. Otherwise, why are we so outraged by it? That outrage 
implicitly is arguing for the idea that there is a standard to which all of us are accountable, the violation of which requires the most strenuous argument and the call for, you know, repentance, if you will. So yeah, a world that kind of looks and thinks and mocks that we worry about sin so much, it's that same world that really needs the category of sin, even if it doesn't apply sin as offending any personal deity. But, all right, let's say that's the way the world thinks about it. Maybe, well, what about you? I mean, maybe, maybe hearing us all this talk about sin, and we've talked about all sorts of wonderful things. Can't we move on to the, to the, the more lovely, the more positive things, like, you know, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, all of those things we certainly give our attention to. And, and maybe you think, could we, could we talk about something else? Why do you belabor it? But look, I ask you rhetorically, can you imagine this day how much your life would be different if sin had not been such a fixture within it? Can you imagine how your life would be different if you had not given yourself to lying, to to any form of treachery or deceit, to, to malice or a lack of charity? Can you, can you imagine how your world would be different if you had not succumbed to an unrighteous anger or lust? Your life would be different. And so this freedom, this freedom not to sin is, is not, you know, fundamentally about the, the boxes that you, you know, don't have to check off or the things that you did that you now regret. This is a path to life. If sin is the path to death, then the absence of sin is a path to life for that which we give thanks. So yeah, it matters that we think about it. Look, uh, we, at the early part of the, 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 the service, we, we ordained the three new deacons and a new elder. And like we said, that, that they're not just up there for their own self-promotion, you know, that they've been entrusted with the responsibility to love and serve and help us to mature. Because imagine, friends, how much the church at large, or maybe even Grace Mills River, would be different if, if we did not have these intrinsic impulses to suspicion, or to malice, or to hypocrisy, or to hatred, or all the number of things that can plague any community, including our own. So yeah, it's worth talking about sin, and it's worth imagining what would it mean for us to believe that we've been freed, that we now no longer have to sin, and finally live. And even though we say all that, and even though it sounds attractive, the question is, is, is Paul just, you know, blowing smoke here? Is it real? Is the claim just sort of this theological thing that lives up here in the ether, but it's not really relevant to our condition, especially when Paul himself calls himself the chief of sinners? So why bother making a fuss over the fact that we have a freedom not to sin? Maybe it's worth making a fuss over when we, when we shift to the second question that I think we need to answer here, and that is, how did we come by this freedom if, in fact, we have that freedom? And that has everything to do with a doctrine that maybe we don't speak about as much as we do other doctrines. You, you, you will hear us from time to time talk about the doctrine of justification, that we have been forgiven of our sin, pardoned of all our sin, and declared righteous in God's sight. That's the the doctrine of justification. And around here, we talk far more often about the doctrine of adoption, that by virtue of our faith in him, we are not simply God's conscripts. We're not his lackeys. We are his children. We belong to him. We are belong to him irrevocably as sons and daughters. That's the doctrine of adoption. But ironically, 
the doctrine that actually gets more airtime than even justification or adoption is the doctrine of union. This idea that we share in what Jesus has such that what is his is ours. We are united to him by faith in him. And let me, let me unpack that just a little bit. Look, it says of Jesus that he was died, that he's raised, and yet his being raised is different from others in the New Testament who are raised. He's different from Lazarus. Lazarus, he raises from the dead in John chapter 11, but Lazarus is going to die again. But what it says of Jesus is that the death he died, he died to the dominion of sin. That the death he died was, as one theologian put it, the death of death. His was a unique kind of death. He could no longer die. His death was once for all. Jesus died to sin, and therefore, what he has done, he has come to be like us, he's come to suffer for us on our behalf, and he has come to satisfy everything that the curse of sin required, everything that death required, and when he died, he was done. The requirement was satisfied. You know the, you know, the way they speak of in the mafia when, uh, when, when you no longer mean anything to that person, they say, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. Jesus can now look at the curse of the law for sin and look at death and say, you are dead to me. You no longer have a claim to me. So that's Jesus. He dies to sin. What does that have to do with us? If you were listening closely in the passage, it says of us that we were baptized in him, that we were buried with him, that we were crucified with him, and that as we will share in the death like him, we will also share in the resurrection like him. Jesus was buried, he was crucified, he was, he's died, he had that experience, and Jesus' experience, while it is not identical to our experience, we still share in the same outcome. We have what he has as a consequence of our faith in him, and therefore that is because we are united to him by faith. Look, Leon Morris is a theologian of the last century and he uses this rather stark example of a slave to a master. And so long as that slave is a slave to his master, he must answer his call. He must do everything that he says. He must, you know, tote that barrel and all that comes with it. But if the slave dies, the master has no longer any claim on him. The, the slave no longer has any obligation to satisfy the demands of his master. Well, that's what's happened to us by virtue of our union with Jesus. We have died to a master. We now have another master if we are united to him by faith. We no longer have to look at sin and it says to us, jump. We no longer have to say how high. We no longer have to respond to it in an obedient way because it no longer has the mastery over us and no longer has the unchecked power over us like it once did. It is like the proverbial elephant. You've maybe heard this illustration before. They, In those awful days when they would chain up elephants and they would chain him to a post and it would never be able to depart from where its master was. And then at some point, the elephant begins to internalize that it is chained and therefore it thinks it never shall be liberated. And there comes a point where the master would then cut it off its chain and just shackle it. We just have a shackle around its leg, but not chain it to anything else. But because the elephant thought it was chained, it would still continue to act as if it were chained, even though it weren't. Friends, we can still act in that way. 
we are no longer chained to sin as we once were by virtue of our faith in Jesus, but we can still act as if we're shackled to it and still submit to its call to us. And that's why when you want to talk about how has this come unto us, it, it really comes down to a question about our identity. How we think of ourselves is, has this huge impact on the choices that we make and the way in which we face temptations. And I want to kind of capture that by showing a rather vivid illustration with a little bit of a qualification. Okay, kids, raise your hand if you ever saw Moana. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I see you. I saw it too. I saw it too. Loved it, right? Moana is about this young girl who is the daughter of a king of a Polynesian island. And she grows up and goes on the, the typical hero's journey. And there is a demonic volcanic spirit that exerts its um, malevolent um, power over that world. And at one point late in the film, Moana has gone to confront this demonic volcanic power by the name of Teka. And Moana has something to tell Teka about itself, something that surprises everybody in the room. Let her come to me. come to learn that this volcanic, demonic force that is plaguing all of that realm actually had an alternative and an earlier identity, and that that identity had been stolen from her, that her heart had been stolen from her. And now Moana is there to say, I have crossed the horizon to find you, that this heart that's been stolen from you, this does not define you. You've forgotten who you are. And that's powerful and that resonates in a way with what we're saying here but it's also a very modern thing right it's a very modern message that to say you just got to remember who you are just be who you are and and there's certainly potency in that and there's a kind of truth to that but what the gospel comes along and it says something slightly different that for you to understand who you are you have to back up and first remember whose you are you've forgotten whose you are whose you are. And when you come to reckon with that truth, 
then you start to understand how you've come by this new freedom. And then you've come perhaps to the beginning of an understanding of the last question we have to ask. What then is our responsibility with this new freedom on the basis of this new identity that says we belong to one that we're united to him by faith? What's our responsibility? It means quite simply that when you are faced with, tempted with, for instance, unrighteous anger to indulge it, you are not obliged to indulge it. You are, you are not fated to go there. When, when you are tempted with unrighteousness or self-righteousness or, or lust, being you know, tantalized by it or objectifying someone, you are not, it's not inevitable that you go there. It's not something that you have to indulge, that you've been given a choice because now there is a new power that resides within you that reminds you of something about who you are and whose you are. It's how it works. Because you've died to sin, and you've died to the way and to the degree in which it's formerly exerted mastery over you. And that, again, it all sounds so wonderful. How does it work? How do we go with that? When it comes to medicine, every medicine, every prescription, every, every therapy that you might undergo, they will say that every therapy has a mechanism of action that there's something that is intrinsic to the properties of that therapy that allows it to work in such a way to bring some sort of remedy or, or relief unto you. What is the mechanism of action when it comes to this power within us that leads us to believe that we're no longer fated to sin? That mechanism of action is beauty. The beauty that we detect when we consider the love that has come to us in Jesus. Paul speaks in other places to the church at Corinth that it is the love of Christ, the way Christ has loved him that compels him to live no longer for himself, but for him who died and was raised for us on our behalf. It is the beauty of seeing who Jesus is and what he has done, how Jesus has crossed the horizon to come and remind us that what we are and what we have done does not define us, but that what most defines us is that we belong to him. When we see that, when we grapple with that, when we have the spirit whispering in our ear that we belong to him, that has a change, that has an effect, that we might actually indulge this freedom not to sin. You may have heard the story from about five years ago about a woman in Ohio who was dying of a liver that was giving out and she was desperately in need of a liver transplant. And Somehow, um, a man who is a, a law enforcement um, um, uh, servant, he, he comes to hear of this woman's condition, and on a whim, he, 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 he gives a blood test just to see if he might be a match, and it turns out, wow, he's a match. And, and what does he do? He's never met her in his life. He doesn't know her from Adam. And what does he do? He offers a portion of his liver that it might regenerate hers that she might live, just because. He didn't want anything out of it. He just knew that what he had, she needed, and he was willing to give some of it, so he does. And, and so... He gives her a portion of his liver, and she survives. And she is grateful because, because of what he did. She, she's now going to live for a lot longer, but her gratitude went beyond gratitude. She was smitten with his work, smitten with his actions, and so endeared to him by his love that he showed for her in the sacrifice that he gave to her that when they decided that they loved one another, she said yes to him when he asked her to marry him. She was betrothed to him in love. Friends, when you come to see, when I come to see, 
when I come to remember the extent to which he went to offer himself to rescue me from my own degradation, my own intrinsic corruption, then I become smitten with him that I am willing to become betrothed to him in love. And that's beauty. And that's where it takes us. That is the beauty of love. And so when he says, let not sin reign in your mortal body once more, but devote your members not to unrighteousness, but to righteousness, how does that play out very practically? If you'll let me end this by going back to Middle Earth one more time. Of all the characters in all the trilogies, in all the films, the one character that my wife has the most sympathy for, it's Gollum, right? Because at the same time that Gollum is this fiendish character who is uh, suffering the consequences of his own temptation, there's also a part of him for which you have great sympathy because he's struggling inwardly. And in this scene, which you probably remember, you, you see Gollum having a conversation with himself. It's a divided self. The cinematographer is purposely going back and forth from different camera angles to suggest that there are, there's a, an inward confrontation, an inner conversation that, sent, that, uh, that Gollum is having to, to suffer through in order to remember what is right and what should he do. So just listen. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar and a thief. No. Murderer. Go away. Go away. <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. Where would you be without me? Willem, Willem. I saved us. It was me. We survived because of me. sympathy for a character like that because you know he's tormented by this inward struggle to want to do what is true and pleasing and what would be profitable to him and yet he knows full well if it were that easy he wouldn't be having this conversation with himself and anybody that tells you that to walk in the freedom not to sin is easy they are out to sell you something princess but I think we learned something still very true in that very fantastic moment there in the two towers and that is this for him and for us, 
our ability to walk in the freedom that we've been given is not primarily about resolve. It's not primarily about willpower. It's not primarily about self-restraint. It's about remembering who is that master that most loves you and who has demonstrated that love for you abundantly. The ability to walk in sin is the ability to hear the Spirit who whispers in your ear to remind you that you belong to Him who crossed the horizon to find you, to remind you whose you belong to. Even the one you belong to, even when you succumb, even when you fall, even when you fail, you belong to Him irrevocably. That's how we walk in that freedom. You turn from sin by turning to Him who loves you at great cost to Himself. Beloved Gandalf, a resurrected Gandalf, exerts his power to liberate his friend from his affliction that he might walk in freedom. Friends, that's the gospel. We have a real resurrected Jesus who exerts his power on our behalf to liberate us from that which is killing us, that we might walk in the freedom that he then charts for us and then gives us his spirit, the power to do so. This we believe. This is our freedom. Help us to walk in it, O Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.